Hello again, and welcome back once more. Fellow coffee and book lovers, we are continuing on today in the book Coffee, a Connoisseur's Companion by Claudia Roden. We are still on chapter one called History in the section about coffee houses, and we left off uh, previously on page 27, where I will be continuing today. Some coffee houses were frequented by one particular group, and eventually almost every rank and profession and every shade of political opinion had its own headquarters. The Rhoda Coffee House was essentially a debating society for the dissemination of Republican ideas. Tilliards was royalist, as was the Grecian in London, which was the beginning of the Royal Society. Coffee houses near colleges were called penny universities, since there, it was said, a man could pick up more useful knowledge than he could if applying himself to his book for a whole month. The penny was the price of a coffee. Having flourished during the Commonwealth and survived the Great Fire, coffee houses slipped into a new role with the, restore, with the restoration. They became less democratic, more establishment for the fashionable, the gay and the rich, reflecting the social and intellectual life and splendor of the time. The connoisseur in 1754 described the Bedford, which was typical of the new restoration style. This coffee house is every night crowded with many parts. Almost everyone you meet is a polite scholar and a wit. Jokes and bons mots are echoed from box to box. Every branch of literature is critically examined and the merit of every production of the press or performance of the theaters weighed and determined. Certain coffee houses in the city were the general mart of stock job of stock jobbers and brokers. One in Sweeting's Alley became known as the Stock Exchange Coffee House. From some evolved the great mercantile and shipping exchange. A coffee man, Edward Lloyd, opened Lloyd's Coffee House for seafaring men in Tower Street. Here, underwriters met over coffee and listened to the gossip of the ships and the sea. Merchants and shipowners came to insure their ships and their cargoes, and slaves were occasionally bought. The Baltic Mercantile and Shipping Exchange started at the Virginia and the Jerusalem. Goldsmiths and bankers' clerks would meet at coffee houses to settle payments and do their outside business. In 1682, the Bank of Credit Payments the Bank of Credit was formed and announced that they were ready to do business in the coffee houses and that all persons that are desirous to subscribe may come either to Garraway's, Jonathan's, or the Amsterdam within Temple Bar, Peter's Coffee House in Con Covent Garden, or the Mail Coffee House at Sharing Cross, at all of which places books will be ready and persons attend from 10 to 12 in the morning and from 5 to 7 in the evening. A room was rented for the clerks to meet regularly at the Five Bells. They later transferred to the clearing house. At Tom's, the oldest, for, the oldest fire insurance, called the Hand in Hand, was formed. This was later incorporated in the commercial union. Even doctors used city houses as consulting rooms. The gossip of the coffee houses found expression in newsletters, privately commissioned by wealthy individuals or institutions such as the church. These handwritten contributions gathered from rumor were the most valuable source of information at a time when official newspapers were heavily censored. 
Coffee houses also offered information, as well as a ready circulation for established newspapers such as the Tatler, the Spectator, and the Guardian. Some provided a brass plate or an ivory tablet with a pencil attached for their customers to write their remarks. The items of news were collected twice a day while still hot for immediate entry. At Buttons, a box in the shape of a lion's head awaited contributions for the Guardian. However, the importance of coffee houses was not to last forever. Their phenomenal rise was equaled only by their spectacular decline. When the time came, they disappeared as quickly as they had come. They had served their unique social purpose and were no longer needed. Perhaps the English were unable to lay aside their traditional reserve forever, at least without resorting to a genuinely intoxicating beverage. Not all the undesirables could be eased out, and people did not like to find at their table a gripping usur, and next to him a gallant furioso, then nigh to him a virtuoso, a player, a country clown, some pragmatic, a sly fanatic, from all parts of the earth. Dutch, Danes, Turks, and Jews, they were warned, if there you should observe a person without previous acquaintance, paying you extraordinary marks of civility, if he put in for a share of your conversation with a pretended air of deference, if he tenders his assistance and would be suddenly thought your friend, avoid him as a pest, for these are the usual baits by which the unwary are caught. By the end of the 18th century, the coffee houses, of which there had been thousands, had all disappeared. Most of them had become select members' clubs. The poor and the less exclusive had slipped back into their earlier role of taverns and chop houses. One institution was certainly pleased. The British East India Company, far behind the Dutch and the French in the cultivation of coffee in the British colonies, was more interested in selling tea. The British government, wishing to improve trade with India and China, was glad of the opportunity to encourage tea drinking. Tea had already been adopted by the royal family and the court, and women could at last join the men in the new and fashionable tea gardens. Tea was also better made. The bitter black drink, as Pepys used to call coffee, was made in various ways, all equally peculiar, usually served black. It was boiled with eggshells and sometimes mixed with mustard or sugar candy. Some concoctions included oatmeal, a pint of ale, or any wine, ginger, honey, or sugar to please the taste. Butter might be added and any cordial powder or pleasant spice. No wonder coffee was so easily dismissed from favor. Its popularity lay more in the realm of social history than in that of gastronomy. It was only in the 1950s that coffee bars mushroomed again in Britain. The espresso coffee machine, invented by the Italian Achille Gaggia in 1946, became the success stories of became the success story of the 50s. It was responsible for the rash of coffee bars which started in Soho and spread throughout the country. Young people could meet casually over a cup of coffee in a contemporary decor, which then meant tiles wickerwork, bare bricks, and matting. The style was exotic with tropical vegetation, homely and rustic with bunches of onions and garlic, 
or Italian with fleets of gondolas and candy bottles holding candles, a real departure from the old snack bars of England. Pottery makers and glass blowers twisted their wares into fantastic shapes for the dark subterranean bars and the brilliantly lit houses of fantasy. The sound of a parrot or of a Spanish guitar carried the drinkers away into strange, far-off places. Social needs were met, but the standard of the brew was well below the one produced by the same machines in Italy. Even with an Italian behind the machine, the coffee served was invariably poor. And today I will leave off there at the bottom of page 30 to be continued again next morning when we can enjoy more coffee together. Thank you.